Dr. McCoy has the medical, biological knowledge. Mr. Spock is better suited physically and emotionally to stand the stress. Both are right, both are capable, and which of my friends do I condemn to death? Bridge to all decks. Time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris, and I'm feeling a little bit under the weather today. Like maybe, I don't know, I caught some kind of virus or something. I, I, I think there's something going around. There is a very big virus going around, and it is not the virus that you were thinking. It is a virus way out in space that looks like a giant amoeba. Now, that may sound actually ridiculous, but it is it is the plot of the immunity syndrome uh, here that we are covering for the original Star Trek series on Enterprise Incidents. And let's say, you know, you and I have talked, Steve, about episodes that we keep going back to watching over and over again, maybe episodes that we, we watch occasionally, maybe not all the time, like some of the others. And then there are episodes that I just never, I never right. voluntarily go back to watch. This is one of them. And- during my rewatch to prepare for our podcast conversation on Enterprise Incidents, I was reminded of the reasons why <laughs> I never really cared for the immunity syndrome. It is my least favorite episode of season two of Star Trek. Now, it is not, I wouldn't say it's the alternative factor <laughs> of season two of Star Trek, uh, but... Uh, it is still an episode that I, during my rewatch, I have problems with it. I also found a whole lot to like about it that I never really thought about because it's been so really years since I rewatched the immunity syndrome. But, but where do you stand before the, you know, getting ready for the deep dive? Where'd you stand on immunity syndrome? So, so it's, it's very much what you said. And I think I've described this before, which is that, you know, frequently when I would come home from school and I would turn on Star Trek and I'd go, oh, cool, it's Doomsday Machine or, oh, cool, it's, you know, Battle Bounce for Terror. And then I would go, oh, oh, yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how I felt about Immunity Syndrome. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I for always forget about that one. I think it has one sort of really good plot line. Yep. And the rest of it is pretty weak. It is not my least favorite of season two because I would rather watch Immunity Syndrome than Cat's Paw. But, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is not, it's certain. I mean, part of it is we've had such a good run. I mean, there's so many great episodes. And then you have ones like Gamesters of Triskillion, which is, it's fun. You know, it's not a yeah. great episode, but this is, this is definitely a step down. Yeah, yeah, like Games of Triskelion, uh, I look at that as a second-tier episode, but a second-tier episode of Star Trek is still a pretty great episode. Uh, the episode that we have coming up in a, in a couple of shows, one that I'm really looking forward to doing is By Any Other Name, mm -hmm. uh, an, an episode I've always really enjoyed and actually is one of my go-to episodes. Sure. Uh, it's, it's not up there with like Doomsday Machine or Journey to Babel or Mock Time, but uh, it's one I really enjoy. But Immunity Syndrome, it just, it just didn't work for me, and I was reminded of the reasons why it didn't work for me, and I'm sure we're going to get into all of that during our deep dive. But the, the one thing about the immunity syndrome uh, that is notable is that it was directed by Joseph Pevney. Hmm. 
Now, Joseph Pevney, one of the very, very best directors of Star Trek, along with Mark Daniels and Ralph Sinensky. But what's notable about Joseph Pevney is that this is his 14th and final episode of Star Trek. And as for why it was his final episode, I'm going to save that for the end of our conversation okay. when we do our wrap-up about what people were saying <laughs> about uh, the immunity. I'm interested now. So, yeah. yeah, you're going to be very interested to hear what Joseph Pevney had to say about why this was his final episode. The teleplay was written by Robert Sabaroff, who had written for Bonanza, The Invaders, Marcus Welby, M.D., he was a producer of the series Then Came Bronson, where he worked with Robert Justman, and he wrote two episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation hmm. from the first season, Conspiracy, which is a really good episode of the first season of Next Generation, and Home Soil, which is an episode <laughs> of the first season of I'm The Next Generation. trying to remember which one Home Soil is. I remember what Conspiracy is. Conspiracy is one where the guy's head blows up. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 say, say, I would say it is a really good episode for the first season of Star Trek Correct. The Next Generation. Absolutely. I, I don't think it's a really good episode. <laughs> right. When you look at uh, season three onwards, yeah. you're right. Maybe Conspiracy doesn't match up. But Sabaroff wrote his story outline on April 7th. 1967, and he did a couple of screenplay drafts. His second draft script came in on October 19th. And John Meredith Lucas, who was the day-to-day showrunner by this point for Star Trek, did his rewrite, his final draft, on October 17th. So this was an episode that did not go through a lot of revisions, a lot of rewrites. Gene Kuhn definitely had a hand in this episode as well. So The Immunity Syndrome aired on January 19th 1968, making it the 47th episode to air, but it was actually the 49th episode to film, and it was filmed over six days between October 26 and November 1st, 1967. Six days. So it came in right on schedule and way under budget. The final cost for the immunity syndrome was $171,391, which brought it in more than ten thousand dollars under budget there are a few reasons for why the episode came in way under budget for one thing the score was tracked they didn't do any new music the second thing is that this is a bottle show the entire episode takes place on the enterprise they filmed on stage nine most of the time the only time they filmed on stage 10 were for the interior shuttlecraft scenes with spock they were they were the only scenes that was all that was all done on a half of a day but uh so when nbc picked up the remainder of season two at the last moment this was the best choice to be the next episode, the 19th episode to film of season two. Uh, and uh, there were no guest stars. Right. So uh, the only guest star you have is uh, Mr. Kyle, right. who Shatner continually pronounces his name wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so that was why th- this episode came in under, under budget. So uh, people might have noticed that last week when we did Gamesters of Triskillian, we didn't even include what was going on in the world. And frankly, it was because there wasn't that much. And it yeah. was sort of, and this week is sort of the same. A bunch of people did say, hey, where was what was going on in the world? Well, I'll tell you what was going on. There is one 
really important event. Let's hear it. Um, as you said, it was filmed from October 25th to November 1st. Uh, on October 26th, the Shah of Iran was coronated. He'd actually been ruling Iran for a while, but he was coronated. And then the other thing that happened that day is something that we've been talking around for quite some time, and that is October 26, 1967, is the day that John McCain was sh- actually shot down. Oh, wow. Yeah, we did yeah. talk about that. I mean, it's come up so many different places, with, but, but now is when it actually happened. On the 28th, Julia Roberts was born. On the 31st, Vanilla Ice was born. <laughs> wow. I didn't realize Vanilla Ice was as old as Julia Roberts. Yeah. There you go. Well, and which is really like basically, you know, a year older than us. <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. <laughs> and, uh, and then ex- almost exactly a year older than us. And then uh, Bob McNamara, who's Secretary of Defense, gave some very, very pessimistic views of Vietnam to President Johnson. And this is leading towards the decision that LBJ is going to make to not run for another term as president. Oh, interesting. So so that but so that is everything that was going on in the world. And when when the episode was actually aired in January, that was when in January 1968 is when the Tet Offensive was underway in Vietnam. So there was definitely a lot going on. I would say more going on when the episode aired than when the episode was actually filmed. Would you like to get into the immunity syndrome? <laughs> Let's get into with the antibodies and. T-bodies. T-bodies. That's what I remember most about this episode. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, so in the teaser, the music is kind of somber, and we hear that we're exhausted, and we're going to get some R&R, and Kirk has a very specific line. And I, too, am looking forward to a nice period of rest on some lovely planet. Planet. And he says that as he's looking at a yeoman walking yes. by. So what is the rest of relaxation after a, 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 a very, obviously, exhausting experience. So, of course, I'm thinking it has to be his experience with the uh, providers on Triskelion. Because he especially, you know, Kirk and uh, Uhura and Chekhov oh, are... Oh, I see what you're saying. I mean, you, like you saw, like, Kirk got the crap kicked out of him. He got whipped with an inch of his life. If anybody needs a little R&R after that whole experience, it's, it's him. Maybe that is why the camera cut to Uhura and Chekhov as well, mm. being being they were more tired than anyone else in the crew. You know what's so funny is is this actually is a good example of how actual you know sequential tied together stories work. Is that if you just had a little thing where you saw the scar, the whip scar, or they look at each other. You know, yeah. then it would be, then it kind of feel, and it's not a big thing; it'd be a little thing. I love this idea. I think it's a great idea, Captain. I have a message from Starbase 6. It's heavy interference. All I get is intrepid and what sounded like a sector coordinate. And one thing we hear is that the intrepid is manned entirely by Vulcans. And as we're saying this, there's a huge music sting and Spock has a big pained reaction. Because he senses that the intrepid just died. And he felt this. He sensed this across the light years of the galaxy. And in the earlier versions of the teleplay, the name of the captain of the Intrepid was listed. It was listed as Satak, but it was cut from the final draft. And you know what? This moment always makes me think of. I felt a great disturbance in the force, as if millions of voices suddenly cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. Oh, I never thought of that. You were crossing the streams, my friend. Well, and I, and, you know, and of course, George Lucas watched Star Trek. And Mer- John Meredith Lucas 
was the producer. Well, there you go. Of Star Trek. Um, and and they're first of all, no one's seen Spock behave this way. It's very strange behavior for him. So they're they're, they're like, okay, well, let's get you to sick bay. And he goes, Doctor, I know what I know. Get to the sick bay. And we get a call from Starfleet, and Kirk is trying to explain, like, hey, we're tired. Right, right. And they go, no, not only have we lost contact with the Intrepid, but we've lost contact with this entire sector. When Kirk gets the word from Starbase 6, we need you to investigate. And Kirk says, isn't there another starship? I mean, we're exhausted. He goes, guy goes, nope, you, you got to do this. See, that is when the camera cuts to Chekhov. Oh, at, mm-hmm. He's at the science station because Spock went down to right. Bay and Uhura at the communication station. That is why I'm thinking that this has to have followed the ordeal of Triskelion because Kirk is visibly exhausted. Nobody does exhausted more than Kirk in this episode. And and the way that it cuts to, to Chekhov and to Uhura, those were the two who were with Kirk on Triskelion. And they went through the ordeal with him. So that is why I think that that this is... The, the, I'm sold. I'm yeah, 100% yeah, absolutely. sold. Absolutely. But the other thing is that Chekhov is once again here, and so is so is Mr. Kyle, played by John Winston. John Winston is sitting at, at the helm station, and he's wearing a gold shirt. So George Takei is still stuck filming The Green Berets, directed by John Wayne. And so the reason that John Winston is wearing a gold shirt instead of the red shirt that he had been wearing all throughout the second season up to this point is because when they were using stock footage showing the view screen and where you see Chekhov at navigation, you would see the arm of Sulu at the helm. Uh. And Sulu's wearing the gold shirt. So if Kyle wore the red shirt, they wouldn't have been able to use that stock footage of the view screen. So that is why they instructed uh, uh, John Winston to wear the gold shirt. But this is the first of many times throughout this episode that William Shatner just cannot say Kyle's name. He keeps calling him Mr. Cowell. Mr. Cowell, you heard the order? Set a course for Gamma 7A, Warp 5. It's so, it's like Kyle is not a hard thing to pronounce, you know? Captain, I have just completed a full long range scan of Gamma 7A system. It is dead. Dead? And what we hear is that in this system, there were billions of inhabitants and that it's dead and that brings us to the end of the teaser what was the episode that that you thought of rewatching this at this moment doomsday machine absolutely yes the doomsday machine well in particular because they they throughout the whole episode and they use a bunch of the doomsday machine music so like it's very doomsday machine i also think we kill billions of people so often in star trek and i, <laughs> I really think that it, it, it you get numb to it, which actually relates to something Spock's going to say later in the episode. That's, oh, yes, it, um, yes, it is. And speaking of which, we come back in Act One. I assure you, Doctor, I'm quite all right. The pain was momentary. It passed quickly. Well, all of my instruments seem to agree with you. If I can trust these crazy Vulcan readings. You know, there's an element, and I think this episode is where it really comes out, where McCoy needling Spock and making little jokes. There's a certain point where it's like, Dude, it's getting kind of racist. It's also, okay, it's also just not appropriate. Yeah. Like in this episode, I felt like, okay, you know, if you're watching an episode like, like you know, Trouble with Tribbles or or where McCoy says, oh, don't tell me you've got a feeling. And Spock is, oh, don't be insulting. You know? Yeah. Like, I, I'm down with that. But here, Spock has just had this this epiphany, this this moment where he right. felt the pain of 400 Vulcans die. And, and the Intrepid is gone. 
And, right. And, and billions of people have died. And McCoy is being really insensitive. He's terrible. Yeah. I, I, I was not down with, with McCoy in this moment. Now, maybe the message didn't get down to sickbay that they've confirmed that the Intrepid is gone. So maybe McCoy doesn't know that yet. And maybe that's a little bit in his defense. But I know that not a person, not even the computers on board the Intrepid, knew what was killing them or would have understood it had they known. One thing that doesn't make sense about this line is, okay, I buy that Spock has mental connection with 400 Vulcans. How does he know what the computer was thinking? Right, exactly. <laughs> you don't know what well, the computer... You, you know, you could say, well, Spock is a computer. Maybe he relates. <laughs> and McCoy says, but 400 Vulcans. And then this is the line I was referring to. Spock says... I've noticed that about your people, Doctor. You find it easier to understand the death of one than the death of a million. And this is really a reference to the famous quote, which is attributed to Stalin, which is, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. Wow. And I think this is 100% true. We have a very hard time thinking about big numbers. That's true. Really hard time. I mean, like right now, Ukraine, like 3 million people have been uprooted and displaced as refugees. I mean, that like, it's such a staggering number. But when you watch the news and you see one person suffering, then your, your heart really feels more. That's that's, I mean, th- wow. th- think of how many times it's like little Timmy has fallen down the well and the whole w- country stops and like, how are we going to rescue little Timmy? Mm-hmm. But then it's like, you know, 20,000 people are going to die of this disease this year. And it's like, eh, whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, millions of people die from malaria, whatever. A million people died of COVID. Yeah. Whatever. But one person like, and that's, it's just how we work emotionally. That's true. You know, yeah. Yep. Um, really good point. Really good point. You speak about the objective hardness of the Vulcan heart, yet how little room there seems to be in yours. And then again, McCoy's reaction is so terrible, which is he's a doctor. And the dude just said, basically said, I'm hurting 400 people that I care about, you know, died, you know, like, and he just kind of keeps going. Suffer the death of thy neighbor, eh, Spock? You wouldn't wish that on us, would you? And it's like, you're a doctor. I, you're his friend. Yeah. You're his friend. Well, and, and, and uh, your whole job is helping people like who are suffering. Like, and it's what's McCoy's character of not compassionate. Like that's his whole point. I, I, I feel like, okay, this is the start of some of the problems that I have with the immunity syndrome. For one thing that it was, it was too, it was too much. It was really insensitive of McCoy. It was out of, even for him, and and Spock, the relationship that they have, even that was out of character under the circumstance of what Spock just went through. And and f- from a writing standpoint, it's contrived. It yeah. doesn't ring like it just does, doesn't ring true, especially what we know about the, these characters up to this point. Well, I mean, the thing is, is like, do they strongly disagree? Totally. Do they have different ways of looking at the world? Absolutely. But both of them, A, are always focused on doing what is right and solving whatever the problem is. They just have different ways of doing it. And B, there, we've established in episodes like A Mock Time that there is a, a base level of care uh, between them as well. And you they know? respect each other. And they definitely respect each other. Like when you look at the apple, when they're arguing to, you know, you, you have these two points of, of you know, McCoy saying how the, the people of, of Val, the Valiants, are, are stagnant, and Spock is saying these people are healthy and they're happy. They, they are both, they're both right, 
They both make equally strong points, and there you respect both of them in the process. Same thing with bread and circuses. Yep. When when they're talking about the, McCoy is saying, you know, uh, they they fight gladiatorial games and put them on the air, and Spock is saying, you know, they they've had no war here for four hundred years. Uh, they're both right, and right. you respect both of them. They're both equally right. But in this case, I just felt like like McCoy just wasn't hearing Spock. He just wasn't like, and he was being completely insensitive and just went too far. Well, I think the thing is, and this is, it's, it's, it's a writing issue is sometimes writers write to write a specific moment because they think that'll be cool, but not necessarily caring if it makes sense with the characters or makes sense in, in terms of what's going on. And we're going to see that a lot in this. Yes, we are. Um, we're back on the bridge and we're hearing more about this solar system that has disappeared. The distortion is getting worse. And then the deflectors pop on. Uh, and of course we're going to hear this many times. We've never encountered readings like this before. And then we see on the view screen, this big black blob in space, but nobody reactions reacts to it. Exactly. What are we looking for? Mr. Spock? I would assume that. And then we cut again for the second time to the big blob on space. We have a big music cue and everyone reacts. And I'm like, here's basic filmmaking. You can't show me a thing once with zero reaction and then expect to get a good reaction when you show it to me a second time. Like you need, you should have cut the first one and have nobody see it and then show it to me. Right. On exactly. The second one. Exactly. We, we do see that. We actually see that happen, you know, a little bit later in the, in the show. But so Kirk responds, what is that? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then again, we're going to have, we're talking about what it could be. We ask Spock what it is. And again, Spock isn't able to give answers. And it's like, I totally get that. It's something we see in lots of episodes, but it happens over and over and over again. It's just playing the same beat a lot of, I don't know what it is. Mr. Chekhov, prepare to launch telemetry probe into that zone. Direct computer feed to Mr. Spock. Hi, sir. Probe ready? Launch probe. Probe launched, sir. And there's some big, loud noise, and everyone an reacts to sound. it. Right, right. An ear-piercing sound as the probe uh, penetrates this, right. that, whatever that is. Which, again, and it's just, <laughs> have we seen them all react on the bridge to an ear-piercing sound before? Yes. Yeah, we've seen this. It's kind of, we've been down this road a bunch. And I don't, you know, obviously, Star Trek repeats stuff. That, uh, that doesn't bother me. But it's in this episode, it really stood out that we're doing, done the Doomsday Machine. We're kind of he- here in the same place again, you know? I think that's... A really great point, and I was going to say this a little later in the show, but but I feel like because we are seeing themes and and plot devices that are are we've seen before in, in other episodes where they were done much better. My overall feeling, it despite the fact that that there are some good moments in the in the immunity syndrome, my overall feeling is that they're they're just phoning it in. And Chekhov kind of moans and Uhura gets dizzy. And then we hear from sickbay that half the people on the ship just fainted. Including Uhura on yeah. the bridge. You want to see her? Unless she's feeling ill. I've got an emergency down here. What's wrong? He just told you that half the ship fainted. I think he, we're clear on what's wrong. Um, and everyone looks tired on the bridge. Spock, give me an update on the dark area ahead. No analysis due to insufficient information. I do like Kirk's response. No speculation, no information, nothing. I've asked you three times for information on that thing, and you've been unable to supply it. Insufficient data is not sufficient, Mr. Spock. You're the science officer. You're supposed to have sufficient data all the time. Okay, here's what i got to say about this. What scene does this remind you of? 
Um, Cobra Mike? Yes, sir. You're on fire today. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Uh, in, in the Cobra Mike maneuver, uh, when they're when they're stuck, they're being held by the cube, and Spock says, uh, "Chess." And and uh, Kirk is irritated yeah. with with Spock, and he says, "Is that your best your best recommendation?" And Spock is about to say, "I'm sorry," mm-hmm. and he says, "No, I I you know I regret. It. I have no right. other other alternative." So, so one thing that I think we've noticed on Enterprise incidents is when the script is lacking, Shatner starts to go a bit further. Yeah, he he lays it on a little thick. Yeah, and I feel like he's doing that right here. Yeah, I agree. I feel like. Up to this point in the original Star Trek, all of season one and up to this point in season two, Shatner's performance was right on point. He was never better as Kirk than he was in in the first, you know, season and three quarters. But by this point, ironically, which was after the point that Gene Kuhn left the show and John Lucas took over and the quality started to dip a little is when is when we start to see a little of the overacting on the part of Shatner. And I feel like that happens in this episode. This is the start of what we're going to see a lot in season three with him. Do you remember, by the way, what Nicholas Meyer said about directing William Shatner, what his technique was? Uh, I think, didn't he say it was to to have him do it over and over and over again until he was just so tired of doing it that he his performance was right on? Yeah, he yeah. tired him out because he would do all these big things. But after, on take eight... He wouldn't do the big thing, and then it just kind of became real, right? Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so, and it seems like I mean, you don't have time to do that on a TV set. There's just you know the the, the budget to to and the schedule. Yeah, wearing wearing your star out with multiple takes is not a good strategy on a TV show either. Um, but clearly, it worked in Wrath of Khan because you get an amazing performance out yeah, of Shatner. Absolutely. Um, and we go through a long conversation about what this thing isn't, um, and then we have this line, and it just seems so dumb to me. Is it? possible that this is what killed that solar system and the intrepid very possible and i say no (laughs) (laughs) like like, you hear this thing died you hear all this bad stuff happen you find this thing right where the bad stuff happened it immediately weakens the ship and everyone on the crew and it's like yeah of course (laughs) this is what did it exactly yeah you know and now kirk stumbles because he's getting tired uh, and they're still moving towards the thing. Penetration of the zone in one minute, seven seconds, sir. So they're going to fly right into this thing. Right. This is so dumb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, could you imagine, like, you see the doomsday machine and you go, yeah, let's let's just fly right to it. Uh, you know, that's a really good point. I mean, th- don't you think that's what the Intrepid, first of all, the Intrepid manned by 400 Vulcans. They just they're died. all thinking logically. And they probably, you know, logically thinking, let's fly into it, see what this thing is. And, and they're about to do the same thing. We know it destroyed, killed billions of people and destroyed a starship. It's like, I would back up a little bit and <laughs> yeah, go like, hold on, because it's already weakened us. We so And we don't know why it's weakened us. Yeah. Like, this is a really stupid plan. Yes, I agree. And then suddenly the stars are gone. The stars are gone. Uh, we call down to McCoy, and everything has gotten worse. And again, that seems not surprising. And we call down to Scotty. We hear that not only are people getting tired, but we've lost 5% of our energies. The deflector shields are weakened. By the way, at one point on the bridge, we see a red shirt faint. Yeah. And that red shirt is Mr. Leslie. Oh. Mr. Leslie, who was killed by the cloud vampire in Obsession. 
but he has been resurrected and now he is on the bridge of the Enterprise. You know what I wonder? Yeah. How there must have been people that noticed this in the first run. I mean, obviously they didn't know that we'd be picking over the show like we do now. No way. But someone watching the show is like, didn't that guy die? Yeah. Yeah. And listen, I I mean, it's 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 one of those things that when the show was being broadcast on the, the televisions of the time, the the high definition and, and people watching right. it over and over again, home entertainment, people watching it in syndication, uh, and like they did throughout the early 70s, right. nobody could have fathomed that Star Trek would have been nitpicked the way that it had, right. has been nitpicked over 55-plus years. Uh, the, the, the miracle is that for the most part, that nitpicking does hold up, but cases like this, not so much. It's funny. Some of the things definitely don't hold up, and some of the things you can't forgive. I think there's a, like there's a difference between I don't. It doesn't bother me that they move use Leslie multiple times. I notice it. Whereas there are other things where it's like, ooh, it's yeah, not no, so good. For sure, yep. And he asks Scotty what's going on. Scotty doesn't know. He talks to Bones. Two thirds of the personnel are affected. Why? How? Do you have any answers? No, you've got everything I can tell you, but when there is nothing, what do you want me to say? And it, this is what I mean. It's like, okay, it, yes, I get it. People don't have answers. But over and over and over again, asking people and getting no answers, it's like, well, what's the point of that in terms of the drama of the show? That sound was the turbulence caused by the penetration of a boundary layer, Captain. The boundary layer between what and what? Between where we were and where we are. <laughs> Kirk says, are you trying to be funny? <laughs> it would never occur to me, Captain. And I'm like... Yes, it would. You make jokes all the time. <laughs> we were just talking about the mutiny joke you made in the last episode. Yeah. Like, Spock is funny. This is like a key thing. So, yes, being funny would occur to you. <laughs> Recommendations? I have one. I recommend survival. Let's get out of here. And I'm like, yeah. That's a great idea. Good plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Kirk gets on the, the PA and says to the whole crew... We're on a difficult mission, but it's not the first time. Our orders do not say stay alive or retreat. Our mission is to investigate. We're sick and we're getting sicker. We have no guarantees, but we have a good ship and the best crew in Starfleet. So do your jobs. Carry on, Kirk. See, now that is the Kirk that I'm, I'm behind. That's the Kirk that I'm behind because... Because that's the Kirk who who addressed his ship in the, in, in one of your favorite episodes oh, and sure. mine to balance of terror. Uh, same thing with the Cobramite maneuver. That's the Kirk that that when John Lucas in when we were talking about it might have been obsession, where I quoted John Lucas as saying that one thing that he felt like he did during his run as the producer showrunner of Star Trek was he brought back the Horatio Hornblower element that was evident in season one, uh, that's something that we did see in season one is Kirk really giving a pep talk to the crew. So actually, I like this moment. Well, I like the lines. I like the performance. I don't like the reason. It's, it's, if, he wasn't, if he was doing something that was smart, I would like the moment, but he's doing something that's dumb. You know, like what we said so much, particularly in the, in the first season, but in the second season and both seasons, is that Kirk the Observer and Kirk the stack of books with legs and Kirk the super smart guy, mm. that, that guy's not here right now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's not making wise. I mean, there, there were reasons. When he makes the speech in Balance of Terror, 
What he's actually saying is we got to be really careful and this is our mission and this is why our mission is important. We don't know why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and I will give you my first – so I, I've been thinking about how, how I would change this episode. You remember – you know I've said several times now that like for me, the great Star Trek episodes have interesting ideas, a good adventure, and they're personal. Mm-hmm. But- and, and this one – isn't really personal yet. It does get a little bit personal in Acts 3 and 4, and we'll Mm -hmm. get to that. But here's what I think, is I think what should have happened is we have this emotional thing happen to Spock at the very beginning of the episode, but it doesn't really have any consequences. It doesn't change behavior. We don't see it as a motivation for anything that he's doing. What if Spock is upset? He doesn't act upset, of course, because... He doesn't show his emotions, but the idea that 400 Vulcans died is upsetting, and it's upsetting because it's a failure. It's a failure of the Vulcan people. Mm -hmm. And so he is more determined, more emotionally involved in in making up for that failure, in redeeming the intrepid throughout this episode, and that is what's motivating his behavior. That would have been great. And here's the thing. It's not... It's not just that we go into this thing for no reason. It's that there's a shuttlecraft that's in this thing that we go in to try to rescue because it's the last surviving shuttlecraft from the Intrepid. Oh, wow. And so we have a reason to do what we're doing. And what they discover is the Vulcans inside the shuttlecraft are all dead and that they were trying to do what we're going to end up trying to do later on in the episode, which is to get information with the shuttlecraft. So that is the first piece of the rewrite that I that, on that this sounds episode. like a pretty good rewrite. That's how I'm, I'm behind it. Yeah, I, I think that would have improved the episode for sure. But by, by the way, one thing that happens is McCoy's on the bridge and says, "I recommend survival." Kirk starts making his little speech, and McCoy is in sick bay <laughs> listening to the speech. It's like, man, <laughs> he, he got, got there fast. He got there real fast. <laughs> Jim, according to the life indicators, the energy levels. Yes, yeah, say it, boss. According to the life monitors, we're dying. Dying. That brings us to the end of Act One, and this was an idea, courtesy of Gene Kuhn. It was Gene Kuhn's idea to have the crew slowly die, to increase the stakes. It's a good idea. I like it. Uh, Act Two, we're in engineering, and we've got shakes, and Scotty's just trying to calibrate the engines, and we went into reverse. Reverse. But that was a forward lurch. How could that happen, a reverse thrust? And Spock calls down and says, I suggest you order Mr. Scott to give us reverse power. He just gave us reverse power. We lurched forward. In that case, Captain, I would suggest we apply forward thrust. We're in the briefing room. We hear... All I can contribute is the further we travel into this zone of darkness, the weaker our life functions become, and I have no idea why. And we also hear the power levels are going down. Now we're only at 60% power. See, my feeling is that that this I, I mentioned at the top of the podcast here that they they didn't do a whole lot of rewriting right for this episode. I, I mean, obviously they should have. I yeah. mean, you had some good ideas right now. I mean, and again, part of the reason that they filmed this episode was when they were filming Games of the Triskelion and they got the word that they were going to that NBC picked up the series for the rest of the season. The immunity syndrome was the easiest episode to use because again it was a bottle show and they didn't have to hire any guest stars and they could just it was they could just rush right into it 
and it feels like they rushed right into it because I just don't feel like it's all like there's a lot of facts, there's a lot of dialogue, there's a lot of exposition, but it's not really coming together. It's not really like you know what I mean. Like it, it it's not like like it's not heating like a souffle. You know, it's not it's not rising, and in some ways, the way it's written, it just kind of feels like they're they were making it up as they went along. Yeah, and and I think too, there's so much technical conversation and so much I don't knows, and it's not that I don't knows can't be dramatic, but it's like when Star Trek is good, there's always going to be you know have do the phase this with the phasers or this with the shields or do this to the engines. That, those things are always going to happen, but mm-hmm. it's those always should be the minority. When they move towards the majority of what's happening, then that's when Star Trek gets less good. Yeah, you I know? agree. I agree. Scotty, channel all the impulse and warp power into one massive thrust forward. That might snap us out of the zone. Aye, Captain. But I'll reserve some for the shields just in case we don't get out. I submit, Mr. Scott, that if we do not get out, the shields would be extraneous. They would only prolong our wait for death by a short period of time. So Spock is making the argument to sacrifice the shields for other power. He's going to do literally exactly the opposite thing when he's in the shuttlecraft. And this is what I mean by like writing for a moment where that moment is interesting. Like, hey, Scotty, this doesn't work. We're all dead anyway. That's an interesting moment, but it isn't consistent with what's happening in the course of this episode. Yep. So everyone's dismissed. Spock turns around and says, The intrepid would have done all these things too, and yet they were destroyed. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, they may not have done all these things. You just pointed out how illogical the situation is. True. It is also true they never knew what was killing them. Their logic would not have permitted them to believe they were being killed. Now, here's here's an interesting point. So if you got the Intrepid, which is a crew of, of more than 400 Vulcans, pure Vulcans, Right. That do not have a human side that they're suppressing. Mm-hmm. Also, they don't have any any emotional officers that are are bringing a different perspective to command decisions. Yes, that's what you have on the Enterprise right now. Mm. Through Spock, you have a representation of four hundred Vulcans on the Intrepid, but with the rest of the crew, including especially the captain of the Enterprise, you have that emotion that when we talked about the Galileo Seven, you saw the difference. Right. Two different commands, a, a, a completely logical approach that Spock was using on the planet and the, the human approach that Kirk was using on the Enterprise. And the, the, the balance of the two is necessary. So while Spock says the Intrepid would have done all these things, Kirk says, well, maybe not. Kirk is right. Yeah. So, so while they've made some, you know, illogical decisions up to this point, that 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 is is something that will serve them well throughout the course of this mission. So you uh, you just gave me a full epiphany about what makes Star Trek great and why it is so smart. Um, have you have you familiar with or heard of the Malcolm Gladwell book called Blink? I heard, I have heard of it, but so, tell me more about it. So Blink is about how people make split decisions and how it goes well and not well. I think I read it a while ago, but one of the things he talks about is plane crashes. And he says, in commercial airline crashes, and I'll give you, see, you take a guess of what the answer is be. Is it more likely when the plane crashes that the senior captain, the top guy, is in charge, or that one of the co-pilots is in charge? Because on long flights, they, you know, they alternate, they take shifts. Which is more likely when the plane crashes? 
when the plane crashes. Uh, the most experienced guy or the less experienced guy? The less experienced guy. And it's actually the opposite. It is the most, because that's logically what I would say too. Of course it would be the less experienced guy. Yeah. And part of, and one of the things that, and this is again, I have issues with Malcolm Gladwell. We could do a whole podcast on my feelings about him, but he is quite brilliant. And I do, he has lots of interesting ideas. And this is what he says, that the countries that have the most plane crashes in their airlines are the countries where uh, lower ranking people or lower status people defer the uh, the most to the higher status person. In other words, how much do you talk back to your boss? And two of the countries that have the most plane crashes are were South Korea and Spain, both of which you never question the authority of the boss. And so when the boss is making a mistake, none of the rest of the crew say, hey, you're making a mistake. Right. And the plane crashes. And so like there's one literally where like they have the black box and they can hear the recording in the cockpit. And it's literally the plane it runs it literally runs out of fuel and crashes. And you hear the co-pilot saying, Um, sir, maybe uh we might be using up some fuel. Or, sir, have you looked at the fuel gauge? But none of them will say, dude, we're about to crash. <laughs> we're almost out of fuel. Yeah. And the guy ignores them and they crash. So the Vulcans, you just described it, that they don't have anybody that's questioning the authority of the leader. Interesting. Yeah. What is great about Star Trek? Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Kirk has the benefit of constantly being questioned by people who disagree with him. And that is what keeps the Enterprise from crashing. And that is what makes Star Trek, the original series, Mm -hmm. so great, is this dynamic between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. So even though I don't think this is a great episode, it gave me a great epiphany to connect it to this Malcolm Gladwell theory. I'm very excited about that. (laughs) Um, Then this next line is so bizarre. He says, Vulcan has not been conquered within its collective memory. Memory goes back so far that no Vulcan can conceive of a conqueror. But in the conscience of the king, remember when McCoy is having a drink, he offers Spock a drink, and Spock says, my father was uh, spared the right. benefits of alcohol. McCoy says, oh, now I know they were conquered. <laughs> yeah. But well, here's the thing, too. Saying we have no memory of being conquered, so we can't conceive of failing is stupid. Of course, because they, they had a game where one person played the other person and one one of them lost. Yeah. Like Vulcans have lost at things like the idea that they couldn't even conceive of failure is ridiculous. Absolutely. It's a, it's a dumb statement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what do you think they felt? And I do love this. Astonishment. Kirk makes another announcement to the crew. And then he says to the people on the bridge. Prepare yourselves. And everybody grabs hold of something. <laughs> like, I was like, this is like, why didn't you do that in all of Star Trek? Yeah. You know, nobody yeah. ever grabs. But here they do. They grab hold of something. We say, all right, do it. Scotty does something. There's a big music build. There's a sound build. Everyone leans way back. And then there's a huge, huge shake. And it didn't work. How long will the power hold out? At this rate, plus the drain on all systems, two hours, sir. So, by the way, we're going to have a lot of check-ins on how much time we have. You know, two hours, hour 35, hour and 15. When you do that as a writer, you actually have to think about what the time is. And they don't do a good job here. Uh, the time, oh, oh, the like, time doesn't make sense. The time doesn't make sense. Yeah. No. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's, it, and, and it's by the way, those are the weird technical things that can be really hard writing is figuring out what date. You know, what's, if I said the date was April, well, how many days have passed and what date is it now? 
you know, or like I had to once write, I wrote a scene where it was a poker game and I realized that, oh, I had to figure out what was in everybody's hands and what everyone was betting and have those sync up with where their lines were. And it was really, really hard. Also, you know, for an episode that, that keeps checking in on the time, I don't feel like the suspense kept me on the edge of my seat. No. Like it did in other episodes where where it was definitely a, a race against time, like like Doomsday Machine or Bread and Circuses, where you know it really kept you on the edge of your seat, no matter how many times you watch it. In this episode, to keep counting down how much time they have left, or especially, my goodness, and uh, Naked Time, and talk about uh, an episode where where you you feel like totally it is it is really like down to the wire. This one, I I, I never I, I was never emotionally pulled into this episode. It yep. just never happened. Yep. Well, we're maintaining our distance, Mr. Spock. Have you ascertained yet what we're maintaining our distance from? I cannot say what it is, Captain. But I would say it has found us. Look on the view screen, and there, in glorious visual effects for when this aired in January 1968, you see a giant, colorful amoeba. Yep. A space amoeba. And, like, that... That's what I always refer to. Yeah. <laughs> this episode, the one with the amoeba, the one with the space amoeba. So the visual effects of the space amoeba were done by Varen Dervier photo effects. And that process was achieved by using colored oils and water, mixing it together. And as you know, oil and water do not mix together. So when they were pressed between two glasses, between two gels and the gels were pressed together, it would create the effect of something moving and contracting and expanding to make it look like it was alive. And the glass slides were were pressed together even more, allowing for different shapes to swell and contract. And that is how you got the visual effects of the space amoeba for the immunity syndrome. Do you remember who else, what other director played with oil and water and different colored things on glass and filmed it? Yes, I I would say that was Douglas Trumbull for Closing Cows of the Third Kind and for, uh, well, uh, yeah, Closing Cows of the Third Kind. So um, he, that, he might have done that at Close Encounters, but that's not what I was thinking of. Stanley Kubrick spent weeks playing with little colored liquids for 2001. But, but that's, that's also uh, Trumbo. Trumbo. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Um, and that's also why I think that Kubrick, and that's a while ago since you and we did this on the cinephiles, but yeah, yeah. I think Kubrick put his name as the special effects person. And I th- he might've won the Oscar and Trumbo didn't, I think. That, that's what happened. Yeah. That's correct. Yes. Uh, 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 uh uh, Kubrick won the Oscar because he put his name where Douglas Trumbull's name should have been. Well, part of it is that the, the, I think this one in particular, the liquid stuff, was stuff that Kubrick was doing like in his apartment for weeks by himself. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I think, but it was a lot. I think maybe you should go listen to the episode of the Cinephiles and you could find out because that's when all this was that's fresh when we in our minds. About all that, yeah. Uh, we launched a, a, another probe. We have a long countdown. We have another big shake when the probe hits. We get some data. Interior consists of protoplasm varying from a firmer gelatinous layer to a semi-fluid central mass condition living big music sting that is what is drawing us toward it captain the same way it drew the intrepid to her death
and that's the end of Act Two. So the end of Act Two culminates with that classic shot of the Enterprise that they use it when it's in orbit around a planet. Mm-hmm. I'm referring to the original visual effects, right. not the redone. The, the remastered effects are, are very, very good. But just like the Tholian web, I think Immunity Syndrome is an episode where the visual effects from the, the 60s still hold up in, in a great way. You have that shot of the Enterprise uh, uh, getting uh, zeroing in on the amoeba. It's a great, great shot. But... But for some reason, even after all these decades, especially after doing this this uh, journey with you on Enterprise Incidents, where I've come to to appreciate episodes in a much bigger way that I never did before, even an episode like Miri, uh, you know, which I which I look back on and just go, wow, I really got a whole new appreciation for that episode. I'm not feeling it with the immunity syndrome. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, honestly, it's funny. I think it was actually really cool when we had Walter Koenig in our last episode that he he commented on the fact that you and I were critical of the episodes. Yeah. And look, the Star Trek doesn't hit home runs every single time. Exactly. Exactly. You know? Babe Ruth struck out sometimes. Yeah. Well, and, and, and the thing is, I think it's I think it is as instructive to talk about why it's not working as it is to talk about why it is working. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So it's act three. We're in the lab looking at a picture of an amoeba. We talk about some amoeba stuff. (laughs) I would speculate that this unknown life form is invading our galaxy like a virus. The intrepid died of that particular virus. Just like the constellation died. Exactly. You know, one thing I will say uh, about about rewatching immunity syndrome with the set of eyes is is I was definitely making more more links between immunity syndrome and the, the doomsday right. machine. So the amoeba is feeding off energy. The planet killer was feeding off of rubble right. and was refueling itself from destroyed planets. The uh, planet killer was making its way across the galaxy to the heavily populated area uh, of the galaxy, and now the amoeba is going to like reproduce like amoebas do. Uh, a lot of similarities, but boy, is the Doomsday Machine a far better episode. Well, you remember the thing, what I said about being personal. In the Doomsday Machine, you have Matt Decker. Oh, and you have all of those things that make everything really personal. And here, you really don't. If the Doomsday Machine did not work, it would be the Immunity Syndrome. Yeah. And what we hear is we need to take a closer look. Yep. And Kirk's like, I'm not bringing the Enterprise closer. And McCoy says, perhaps we could risk the shuttlecraft. Perhaps with the... Uh... Protective shield. I'm not sending anyone anywhere. And Spock, this is just what we talked about, is Spock argues. He says, I must differ with you, Captain. We have sent unmanned probes into it. They have given us some information, but they have not told us what we need to know. And we cannot afford the power to take blind shots at it, hoping to kill it. We could send one man in, pinpoint its vulnerable spots. And the thing is, this is a suicide mission. That's how, that's how we're going to think about it. You know what the odds are in coming back? I can't order a man to do that. And McCoy, almost giddy, yeah. says, Who said anything about an order, Jim? You've got a volunteer. I've already done the preliminary work. See, this is where the episode actually improves. It does. I, I have a criticism of it. But I, the idea of what we're getting to, which is Kirk has to choose which of his two best friends yep. he sends to their death. Exactly. That is personal. Uh-huh. That is where it does improve. What I don't like is McCoy's giddiness, his excitement about it. And the motivation they're giving him is this is a great chance for scientific discovery. And it's like, okay, I get it. But like you're talking about a suicide mission. You're talking about going to your death. McCoy wouldn't be giddy. I don't. And so what happens is, is McCoy is aggressively trying to do this because of the science stuff, because he really wants to do it. 
And Spock says to him, You have a martyr complex, doctor. I submit that it disqualifies you. So first of all, does McCoy have a martyr complex? Is there anything martyr-like about what this is? No. No. (laughs) It doesn't describe him at all. No. So in my rewrite, this is Spock's idea, not McCoy's idea. And McCoy accuses Spock of you're only trying to do this because you're to make up to you're embarrassed about what happened to the Vulcans. Embarrassment is a human emotion, doctor. I am merely the right person for the job so that it's not McCoy's motivation that is called into question. It's Spock's motivation that's called into question. That is how I would adjust this. Well, the other thing that's worth pointing out is that in Robert Sabaroff's first story outline, it was not McCoy who was competing with Spock to take the shuttlecraft into the amoeba. It was Kirk? It was, no, uh, it was a doctor named Loretta Myers was competing with Spock to take the shuttle. Uh, Gene Kuhn replaced her with McCoy to increase Kirk's emotional stakes. So Gene Kuhn is, he's gone. You know, by this point, by the time right. they filmed this episode, he had he had left uh, uh, three months before, effectively stepping away as as a producer, and then, uh, you know, his contract ran out with the sixteenth episode, which was a private little war. That was the last episode in which he was listed as producer. But because of all the constant rewriting he did during his time when he was producer. Even after he left, even after there were more rewrites done on the scripts that he touched on while he was still there, certain elements were still there. So even though the second half of the season or, you know, a little right. less than second half of the season, he's gone, his, his touch is still there. And that is – that's his touch. Uh, is that he said, right? Um, it's a great change. Yeah. Because who cares about Lieutenant uh, uh, Doctor Loretta Myers? Yeah. We don't even know this person. Yeah. But by we know McCoy and we know Spock, and they're two of Kirk's closest people. Yeah. And Kirk has to decide. Well, that's the drama comes from Kirk has to decide. Yes. Between his two best friends, that's the most dramatic thing in this episode. And by, and I do like the moment that Kirk goes, "Well, I'm better qualified as a command pilot than you are," which makes you indispensable, Captain. Further. You are not a science specialist. Sorry, uh-uh. You're not a scientist. <laughs> a nice try last day. Um, and they start arguing about who should go. And McCoy, again, excited about the science, says, That organism contains chemical processes we've never seen before and may never see again. While we could learn more in one day. We don't have one day, Doctor. We have precisely one hour and 35 minutes of power left. McCoy's motivation is wrong. He's, 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 his motivation, should, they're all going to die. Your motivation is to save the ship. It, this whole science thing, it doesn't, yeah, exactly. it doesn't ring right. On, what's the point on getting all the science if no one's going to be yeah. around to uh, uh, hear yeah. it? <laughs> he says, I mean, the science is great, but that's a secondary motivation, not a primary motivation. Jim. Captain, I would, gentlemen, I'll decide. Which, of course, is right. He's the captain. Question. Uh, is this a hard decision in terms of who's the right person to go? Not in terms of which friend do you send to die. I'm saying in terms of who should go. No, it's not our decision. No, Spock, of course it should be Spock. That's absolutely the right one to go. I mean, we've, has McCoy ever piloted a shuttle? Like, there's so many things. He was in a shuttle a couple yeah. times, and, and both times he was in a shuttle, they went off course. <laughs> there are so many reasons why Spock is the quali- one qualified sure. and McCoy If you take isn't. the emotional stakes out, yeah. of, out of the picture, yeah. uh, you know, between McCoy and Spock, I mean, Spock is clearly the, the, the right one to go, but... But you talk. He's also 
you know, Kirk's uh, closest friend next yep. to McCoy. And and that's what, what makes it uh, so much more dramatic. And and it is really dramatic. In, in his quarters, in his log, Kirk goes through the advantages that each of them have and says, Both are right. Both are capable. And which of my friends do I condemn to death? In addition to the visual effects, this right here, is the redeeming quality of this episode. Right. The personal stakes, the dynamic between these three people that we have seen just as the centerpiece of so many great moments. Like we talked about this in Obsession, in Kirk's Quarters. We talked about it prior, also in Kirk's Quarters, in The Conscience of the King. Mm -hmm. And here we have another situation, Partly in Kirk's quarters here, yeah. this 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 dynamic between the three of them, it comes in in the middle of Act Three, mm-hmm. uh, when the episode is more than halfway through. Uh, does it completely save the episode? I I would say no, but does it? But does it? But does it? Is it something about the episode that I I am grateful for a hundred percent? Yes. No, I, when he says, which of my friends do I condemn to death? That's great. That's a great Star Trek. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's funny. Another thing I might do in, in, in a rewrite is give something really fun or cool in the teaser, like at the beginning of Balance and Terror when we start in a wedding, because then you give and have it for McCoy. And then you have, therefore, like something awesome is happening for McCoy at the very beginning that's just casual. And then we have later on the decision of do I send him to his death? It's funny you mentioned Balance of Terror because Balance of Terror had bookends yeah. uh, in the chapel. Right. Uh, this episode has a bookend, too, or completely different. It's completely different kind <laughs> of bookend. We'll, we'll get to what um, that is. <laughs> uh, he calls down to Scotty. we own down to an hour and 15 minutes left. He has McCoy and uh, Spock report to his quarters. They walk in while he's talking to Scotty and he says, Prepare the shuttlecraft for launching. Sir. Dr. McCoy will tell you what special equipment to put in it. Kirk out. And McCoy has a reaction. Like, I, I win. And Kirk looks at Spock and says, I'm sorry, Mr. Spock. Right. Uh, I'll get a few things I need, Jim. Not you, Bones. I'm sorry, Mr. Spock. You're best qualified to go. There you go. Mm-hmm. So this is the prime example of something that you wrote it that way because it's a cool moment. Kirk would never do it this way. That Like him... Se- teasing McCoy. This is life and death here. Yeah, he wouldn't. He wouldn't do the little bait and switch, and say, "I'm sorry, Mr. Spock." You know, he would say, "Gentlemen, I've considered this, and this is the decision I'm making, and this is why." Yep. You know, mm-hmm. this is and this is what I mean. Is it a good moment? Totally, totally works, but it isn't the right moment, in my opinion. All right, this scene in the corridor. We're wasting time. The shuttlecraft is ready. You're determined not to let me share in this, aren't you? That's a terrible line. Yeah. The guy's going to his death and you're being petty about McCoy is out of character. It's uh, it's fine that they battle and it's even fine that McCoy is insulting to Spock and insensitive. That's okay. The guy's (laughs) it's a suicide mission. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's going to risk his life to save the ship and you're being so uh, it's awful. So I I get what they were trying to do, but it doesn't work. This is not a competition, doctor. Whether you understand it or not, grant me my own kind of dignity. Falcon dignity. How can I grant you what I don't understand? Again, this is where I go, that's right bordering on racist. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Like you're saying that you're, come on, Vulcan dignity? It's like, yeah, they're a very dignified, Spock is dignified. Like you can't, that is his character. Then employ one of your own superstitions. Wish me luck. 
and there's a long pause and a look from Spock. And then McCoy doesn't say anything and he goes. And again, I'm going to say the same thing. This is a moment. It's written to be a cool moment, but I do not believe it, which is McCoy doesn't say good luck to his friend that is going to die. Right. He goes, Spock goes off. He, he, he goes to the shuttlecraft. The door to the shuttlecraft bay closes and he says, good luck, Spock. And it's like not to his face, not to his face. And again, is it dramatic that he says it silently to the empty room? Totally is. Does DeForest Kelly do a great performance? Totally does. Does it? Does it? Does it work? No. Well, because Spock, who rarely expresses needs or emotion, just asked you, "Wish me luck." Wish me luck. Mm-hmm. And McCoy would say, "Good Absolutely. luck, Absolutely, Spock. Spock. Good luck. You're, yeah, you're the right person for this. Go. Yeah, do, do your thing." So Spock is in the shuttlecraft. The power is draining. He's going to divert all the power he can to shields. Captain, he won't have enough power to get back out if he diverts it to his shields. And of course, A, like I said, this is the opposite of what Spock had suggested in earlier in the briefing room. And B, this is saying, no, this is a suicide mission. That's what's happening. When do you estimate penetration? Slowing now. Contact in 18.3 seconds. Brace yourselves. The area of penetration will no doubt be sensitive. And Spock gets thrown from his chair, and, he, and there's a smaller shake on the Enterprise. Report, Mr. Spock. Spock, report. I am undamaged, Captain. Relay to Mr. Scott, I had 3% power reserve before the shields stabilized. There was nothing to spare. Oh, and Dr. McCoy, you would not have survived it. Which is A, a dig, but B, there was nothing that happened to Spock that made me think it would kill McCoy. Yeah, nothing exploded on the... On He's the, not wound. He looks perfectly yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. He just was a lot of turbulence, but that was it. Yeah, I mean, if he had to do something as a great pilot, or if he had to use his Vulcan strength, or if he got hit with a big thing and he's bleeding from one side, then I could say, hey, McCoy, you wouldn't have survived it. But yep, he, yep. he just fell out of his chair. We do that yeah. on the bridge of the Enterprise all the time. Again, again, I just feel like there, there are... There are contrivances yep. in this episode that 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 prevent me from from embracing it, and this is another one of them. I am losing voice contact. I will transmit internal coordinates of chromosome bodies. And then they lose him. And then there's a bounce, and there's happy music. He's alive. He's kicked it on the side to let us know. It was kind of fun. Okay, kind of fun. Um, and we're analyzing the stuff he's sending. And the big thing we find out is it's ready to reproduce. Almost like a big cloud creature we had just recently. Yes, that's right. And this, is, of course, is the big threat. Is that, oh my God, if it reproduces, this is going to, you know, obviously kill billions more people. Hence, hence the, uh, the, 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 the doomsday machine reference, yeah. too. The pull from that organism is increasing. And the power drain from our shields is getting critical. How much time do we have? No more than an hour now, sir. And this is where I think the time really starts to not kind of match up. And then we get one last message from Spock that's very faint, and we hear... Leave sufficient charge of... Could destroy the organism. Tell Dr. McCoy. You should have wished me luck. Which, again, is, a, is totally a good moment and totally works. I don't think Spock would say this. Uh... At this point, you know what? Maybe, maybe, maybe he maybe would he have. Would. I, I think he would have. He would have probably, uh, you know, he knows this, this is a suicide mission. 
And I think actually he would have said it. He said McCoy, you know, wish me luck, and McCoy didn't wish him luck. And and maybe he would have said this. Sure. Okay. I'm okay with that. Okay. All right. All right. You sold me. And there's kind of a look from McCoy. I mean, that's got to feel he feels bad. He feels, yeah, he, he should feel bad. bad. <laughs> um, the other thing, by the way, is if you have the most critical thing that you need to say and you're having communications problems, you probably would repeat it over and over again. You know? Oh, sure. You wouldn't just say it once and hope they heard you. Uh, we're in Kirk's quarters. Is it me, Jim? Uh, am I so sentimental that I just have to keep believing that he's still alive out there in that mass of protoplasm? He knew the odds when he went out there, just as you did when you volunteered to go. So this is this is another problem I have. So are we assuming that Spock is dead? Yes. We're assuming that Spock is dead. Uh, shouldn't they be more broken up about it? Yeah. That's why I feel like things are are being said without being emoted on. You know, like where's the moment like when in Devil in the Dark when the security guard dies and Kirk kneels down and he he you, you feel right his his heartbreak over it. Yeah. Uh, and I get granted, you know, we're still on a mission. We're still in this thing. And, and you know, it's a life or death situation. But that's why I feel like this was one rewrite away from something more substantial. That's why I feel like they're kind of just going through the motions. Well, here's OK. So I, I, I have a couple of thoughts. I think you make a really, really good point. And one of the things and part of this is relates to the time is that. We just said we're under an hour. Why is Kirk in his quarters? Why is McCoy coming by? We hear the crew is all like falling down dead, and McCoy just comes by to have a chat about Spock. That's that seems weird. And here's the here's the the, the thought I had, which is, and this is like a I I know I'm making this like a, a directing class at this point or a writing class, but but like but that is part of my job. So, <laughs> um, uh, one of the rules of acting is generally you you don't choose to play an emotion. In other words, if I were giving an actor a director and I said, hey, Scott, I want you to be really, really, really sad now, that would be a bad direction. And most actors wouldn't like that direction. And the reason is, have you ever tried to be sad? And the answer is no, people don't try to be sad. Or if I said, Scott, I want you to be really, really embarrassed. Have you ever tried to be embarrassed? No. No. What you're actually doing when you're embarrassed is trying not to look embarrassed. And when you're sad, you don't want anyone to know you're sad. It's withholding. Don't let mccoy know how upset you are mm -hmm. that's a good direction to give mm -hmm. kirk mm -hmm. is so if the scene became about that hey mccoy wants i'm sorry jim and it's like we got stuff to do and you see him push down the emotion we would have actually a stronger emotional reaction and it would fit better into the time situation of the show of i don't have time to mourn for my best friend you know that would be an interesting emotional moment that but this one is not you know. No, I agree. I agree. What is that thing out there, Bones? It's a disease, like a virus invading the body of our galaxy. I like that line, by the way. How many cells does a human body have? Millions. He is way off. It's about 30 trillion cells. Wow. Yeah. And what's interesting, by the way, it's not an important thing, but did you know that most of the cells, the majority of cells in your body are not you? They do not have your DNA. There are all sorts of bacteria and little kind of creatures that are not you. The most of the cells in your body are not you. And not only that is if I took them out of your body, you would die 
real quick. Wow. Yeah. Like they, they help you digest all the food that you eat. They help you do all sorts of, they're doing all sorts of things for us, but they aren't us. Very interesting. This thing, this cell, this virus, it's 11,000 miles long and it's one cell. By the way, one th- other thing that bugs me in this episode is they go back and forth from miles to kilometers multiple times. It's like, <laughs> like, pick one. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. When it grows into millions, we'll be the virus invading its body. Oh, isn't that a thought? Here we are, antibodies of our own galaxy, attacking an invading germ. Be ironic indeed if that were our sole destiny, wouldn't it? And that triggers Kirk. Yep. Antibodies. Antibodies. <laughs> Which is great. It, it's yeah. probably was one of the most memorable things in the show. Antibodies. Bridge. Scott here, sir. What would happen if you diverted all remaining power to the shields? Except for impulse power. Keep that in reserve. Cut the engine thrust? We'd be sucked into that thing like being caught in the wind tunnel, sir. Exactly. Prepare to divert power on my signal. And Kirk, again, almost goes down. You got something to say? Technically, no. Medically, yes. Between the stimulants and the pressure, I would suggest that you try to stay off your feet for a few minutes. I don't have a few minutes, Bones. Maybe none of us do. Mm-hmm. Which is good. He tells Scotty to cut thrust to zero, and there's a big shake, and there's a music build. It is exactly the doomsday music, and it is used when he takes the constellation into the doomsday machine. Yep. And so now we're, it's using the exact same piece of music for the exact same thing happening. Right. You know? Yeah, exactly. And if you notice, uh, because there's a lot of turbulence on the bridge, uh, there, there's a guy in a blue shirt who does a, 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 a flip on the bridge. Uh, Pretty nuts. <laughs> yeah, it's nuts. Do we have impulse power, Scotty? I saved all I could, sir, but I don't know whether we have enough to get back out again or time either. We are committed. Hey, we are. But we're committed to what? And this is also one of those moments where I go, why didn't Kirk tell them all earlier? Yeah. You know, because maybe <laughs> there was things that people could do to prepare. And plus, he's almost passing out at every moment. Like, you would go like, hey, guys, this is what we're going to do. Why leave everyone in the dark except to have a dramatic moment now? Uh, he tells them what the plan is, which is to use anti-power. This thing has a negative energy charge. Everything seems to work in reverse. We'll use antimatter. Antimatter, just like they use at the yep. end of Obsession. To, so, to kill a creature that was about to spawn. Just like at the end of Obsession. Yeah, right. and it's like, so the, again, it's, I know Star Trek reuses ideas, but this is a little not It's creative. It's reusing ideas in a way that it's less inspired. Yeah. Also more far-fetched and contrived. Yeah. How close are you going to it? Point blank range. We'll implant it, then back away. And then he walks over towards the turbo lift and calls Bones over and asks for some more drugs. How long do you think you can keep taking that stuff? It'll blow you apart. Keep me together for another seven minutes. That's all I need. Which, that's okay. Now we hear Spock's personal log. I do like these, these parallel moments. Because Spock says, If this record should survive me, I wish it known that I bequeath my highest commendation and testimonial to the captain officers and crew of the Enterprise. Finest starship in the fleet. Totally gets me. Great. Loved yep. it. Yep. Loved Great it. moment. You never and, hear Spock say that. Yeah, I loved it. And then the next moment, which is parallel to it, which is Kirk giving his comment, taking yep, that moment to give his comment. Yeah. Great I think uh, the, par- parallel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those things work great. 
and we're ready to launch the probe. Scott, how much time do we have left at 100% impulse power? Six, maybe seven minutes, sir. Program fuse for seven-minute delay. And I go, well, why not eight minutes? Like, maybe give yourself a little extra time. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, they launch it. There's a shake. Back us out the way we came in. Mr. Chekhov, a nice straight line. Don't waste any time. And they go, okay, we got six minutes and 37 seconds to get out. And then we hear that there's a metallic substance outside the ship. And we go, oh, my God, it's Spock. He's still here. They try to contact him. They can't contact him. There's no answer. got to get a tractor beam. Captain, we don't have enough time to do it. We only have a 53-second escape margin. I'm well aware of that, Mr. Scott. Get two tractor beams on that shuttlecraft. I saw Which is cool. Yeah. It's a cool moment. And then Spock, who they couldn't reach a moment before, is now talking to them. I recommend you abandon the attempt. Do not risk the ship further on my behalf. Shut up, Spock. We're rescuing you. I actually love this moment. Do you like the nods back I and like forth? I like the nods back and forth. I've used that meme mm. many times on social media, on Twitter. Uh, it's a great meme of uh, McCoy and Kirk nodding. <laughs> Thank you, Captain McCoy. And we're almost out. We're maintaining the tractor beam. But I can't guarantee it'll hold when the warhead explodes. The power levels are... Power levels are dead, sir. And there's a big music build, and Kirk says to Scotty, You may have just written our epitaph, Mr. Scott. Which is kind of a dick thing to say right before you die. Thanks a lot, Scott. <laughs> thanks a lot, yeah, Thanks a lot, Captain. It's like, well, it also, it was Kirk's fault. He's the one who called for the tractor beans. Scotty said no. And there's a big, huge shake and a big shake in the, in the shuttle. And Kirk, I like, by the way, in this episode, he's just hanging on to his chair. He doesn't get thrown around as much. Yeah, right, right. And then we're still alive and we say activate main screen and the stars come back. The stars are back. It worked. The organism is destroyed. And Spock is alive. Spock, you're alive. Obviously, Captain. And I have some fascinating data on the organism. Don't be so smart, Spock. You botched the acetylcholine test. Later, later, later. And they talk about bringing the shuttlecraft on board, and we have, again, a long time to get the shuttlecraft on board. Mr. Chekhov, Atlantic course for Starbase 6, ahead warp factor 5. I'm still looking forward to a nice period of rest and relaxation on some lovely planet. planet. While checking out another girl. So Shatner and Pevney came up with the idea to bookend the episode with that line uh, that he used at the beginning of the mm-hmm. episode. So that was that was uh, something they came up with together. Uh, also noteworthy that the green wraparound shirt that Kirk wears in this mm. is the last time yeah. he wore this shirt uh, uh, pr- produced because in actuality, Bread and Circus is aired after that. So it's the last time people saw it. But this was the last time they used it to film. So... Everything that you just described about the, the destruction of the organism and then just that moment of, of levity at the end, the Coonism, is if you, if you will, that happened without Coon because it was Shatner and Pevney who did it, everything felt so rushed. It felt so rushed. And, you know, there are other episodes where, like, like look at Sitting on the Edge of Forever. Look at everything that happens in the last five minutes of Sitting on the Edge of Forever. But it felt organic. It felt it felt right here. It just feels rushed. And I just feel like this whole episode felt like rushed. They rushed it into production. The script was not in tip top shape. 
uh, it is derivative of other things that we've seen. The countdown, the race against time does not feel natural. But again, I love the the visual effects are still great, even by today's standards. And the the saving grace of the episode is the the, the difficult decision Kirk has to make between his two friends. But Overall, I feel like this is an episode that just didn't work for me. So, Scott, I you you teased me at the beginning of this episode that you're going to tell me what Joseph Pevney, how he ended up leaving the show, and I would really like to find out what that is. Well, you will hear it, but let's hear about what some of the other okay uh, uh, factor, uh, other people had to say. Gene Roddenberry said getting that episode on the network was a small miracle because of NBC not wanting to challenge anyone's idea concerning the origin of life or the purpose of man some things were lost from the story as a result oh. the moment in kirk's quarters where they're talking about how how this could be part of like a big giant mm-hmm. you know they start to go philosophical but it's 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 never as fully profound as as it was heading and that's probably what Roddenberry is alluding to, that, that they had to lose some things. I wonder what they I wonder where it was heading. Uh, I, I just feel like it was heading somewhere, but I don't know where it was going, but it certainly didn't go go where it would have actually improved the episode. It is so upsetting to me that a science fiction show, a science-based show, has to change their script in order to not include, include anything that alludes to evolution. Yeah, well, that was 1967, 68. Still kind of true today it's in still, some ways. Yeah, that's true. People are still fighting this battle. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so Robert Sabarov, who wrote The Immunity Syndrome, said, Gene Kuhn was a very under-remembered man who is one of the major creative forces of Star Trek. I love that he gave props to Gene Kuhn, uh, even though the episode was produced after Gene Kuhn had left. So obviously Gene Kuhn left enough of a mark on Sabaroff for him to make that comment. And Sabaroff also said, William Shatner was quite a character. He was able to play his role with force and command, but at the same time, with a sense of humor and irony, which was necessary to make it work. And Leonard Nimoy was absolutely brilliant. John Winston, who played Lieutenant Kyle, Mm -hmm. otherwise in this episode known as (laughs) Lieutenant Cowell, said, I have great admiration for William Shatner because he could pick up a page of dialogue and that was it. It got done. He'd look at it and he'd do it and do it right and then on to the next page. Very excellent. Joseph Pevney. Okay. In summing up his experience directing his 14th and final episode of Star Trek, when Gene Kuhn left the show... Much of the discipline had gone. The actors were already ingrained in behavioral patterns which didn't permit new inventiveness, which was, as they felt, opposed to their character. Now, I don't bend with that kind of stuff. The director is the director. You want to be a director? Go. Be a director. But when I am the director and you're the actor, you make the greatest contribution you can, and I make the choices. I couldn't enjoy working on Star Trek anymore. The show's the show's whole character had changed for me. And there you go. I'm really surprised because he's not talking about the budgets. He's not talking about the studio. He's not talking about the scripts. He's talking about the actors. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And by the way, and so and so, and to be clear, he's not talking about Walter Koenig, Michelle Nichols, no, Jimmy Doohan. Nope. That's not the actors. He's I, talking I thought about. about that when I was reading the quote. 
Yeah. I said he can't. I, I'm, I'm pretty it's, sure Walter. Probably not Dee Kelly. Uh, yeah. You know, we're not we're not the ones going like, oh, Chekhov would never say this. Yeah. I bet it was Shatner and Nimoy. It's Shatner and Nimoy. Now, now so Joseph Pevney, as you know, ties with Mark Daniels of having directed the most episodes of Star Trek. They each directed 14 episodes. Mark Daniels directed his 14 episodes between The Man Trap and Naked Time, which he did back to back, all the way up to, believe it or not, Spock's Brain was directed by Mark Daniels. That's going to be an interesting deep dive. Now, Joseph Pevney also directed 14 episodes. He directed his 14 between Arena and the Immunity Syndrome, basically a little more than a season right. if, you, if you look at the time frame. In that time between Arena and, and uh, Immunity Syndrome, look at the episodes uh, he directed, episodes like Sitting on the Edge of Forever, Trouble with Tribbles. And yet, by this point, in such a short time, from Arena to now, he noticed such a big drop in the discipline because Gene Kuhn had left. I wonder what Gene Kuhn did to keep especially Shatner and Nimoy disciplined that when Kuhn left, Shatner and Nimoy felt that that they were had more autonomy. I wonder what happened that Gene, that Pevney felt like he he couldn't take it anymore. Well, one thing I think is that as the scripts get worse, Nimoy and Shatner are going to be more difficult and more protective. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I think what's ironic, and this is and maybe this is my final thoughts, is that one of the another basic rule as a writer is ask your characters what they would do. Is that okay, this is the situation in, I'm Spock, what do I do? And in this case, it was, I want to create this moment, I'm going to force my characters to do this thing. So what's ironic to me about what Joseph Pevney said is that he said it was the actors, you know, being too controlling of their thing, but that this episode, these characters are not actually behaving the way that they should be. You know, their their choices they're making are not really making sense. Especially McCoy's. In especially this episode, McCoy's. Especially McCoy's. So like they're they're like when you when you take into account that the episode was rushed into production after they got the order for the back eight and that this was the one that was the most ready. Yeah. It it feels like they rushed it in. Yeah. Because I mean there there are shortcomings in the script and and that's evident even after all these years and especially after watching this episode with with this new set of eyes and, and realizing, yeah, it, it actually is a flawed episode. Yeah. It's not, a, it's not an awful episode. It still has its merits. I still, the, the, the parts of it that I like, I really, really like, Yeah, but, but not enough to, to sort of make me love the episode more than I did, which is why to me, after this conversation, Steve, it still remains my least favorite episode of the second season. And it's why I still put Cat's Paw lower because for me, there are four or five at least moments that I really genuinely like and totally work in this episode. One of them being like the parallel uh, recommendations for from Spock and Kirk. Sure. Mm -hmm. so, you know, some of the, the Kirk moments, some of the McCoy moments, as much as I disagree with them, I think they're really well done. I can't think of a single moment in Cat's Paw that I really like. There's like nothing where I go like, oh, that was really working. See, see, for me, I completely understand why you feel the way you do about Cat's Paw. Uh, after we talked about that episode, uh, which was the first episode filmed for season two, I completely understood why the episode didn't go up in your reassessment. But what I love about that episode, it's it's fun. 
Yeah. It's a Halloween episode. Sure. They knew it was a Halloween episode. Even though it was the first to film for season two, they saved it. And uh, it is also an episode that was produced at the peak of Gene Kuhn's powers. And I feel like there's so much, and especially the cinematography in that episode, Jerry Finnerman, the sets, the castle, the fog, uh, it's, it's, it's fun. Immunity syndrome is not fun. Maybe, maybe it should have been. Maybe it could have been if Kuhn was still there and there could have been more levity and that McCoy's comments to Spock would not have been so out of character and insensitive. But uh, again, not every episode of Star Trek can be sitting on the edge of forever. It's true. So uh, normally I go in and when we get done with our discussion and talk about social media, but I would like to talk about something else first, which is that a bunch of people have asked, well, how can you best support Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve? And there is a really easy way you can help support us, which is Anchor, who hosts our podcast, they have, you can simply subscribe. You can pledge a certain amount of money. It can be as little as like 99 cents a month to help the show. And it's just, it's we're going to put the link in with the show notes. You can go to Anchor, search for Anchor and Enterprise Incidents, and all you have to do is click a button. It's super, super simple, and every little bit helps. So and anything you can do, because frankly, this is truly a labor of love, but it is also a labor. Yes, so. <laughs> it's definitely a labor, so. but it is, like you say, Steve, it is absolutely an absolute labor of love. We've been doing this now uh, for for a year and by the way, just so you know, everyone listening, if you're wondering when we are recording this episode, the date is March 22nd, 2022. And the reason I mentioned the date is because today is William Shatner's 91st birthday. Wow. Happy birthday, Captain Happy Kurt. birthday, Captain. There is no comparison. William Shatner, the man, the legend, and obviously we are big fans of Kirk. So, uh, but yes, if you please uh, support us in any way, we would really appreciate it. We love doing enterprise incidents. I mean, I swear, I mean, it's from the bottom of my heart. It is the thing I look forward to doing the most week after week with Steve. And the fact that we've had so many great guests like Walter Koenig, Ralph Sinensky has been on four times and we're coming up on the fifth time with our good friend, Ralph, our, our third, our third co-host really on enterprise incidents. When we get to return to tomorrow, David Gerald was a fantastic guest and uh, we got so much more to come and uh, you know, we still have a whole third season to get into and there's a lot of good in the third season. But even after you go to anchor, please make sure you head to Apple podcasts and make sure you review Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. Give us a write-up on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it. Make sure you share Enterprise Incidents on your social media platforms so that other fellow Star Trek fans can discover Enterprise Incidents if they haven't already found us yet. Uh, where, Steve, can people find you on social media? They can find me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And you know what's been interesting doing this show with you, Scott, is I think some of our best conversations have been actually about lesser episodes. And the same thing is true of my podcast, The Cinephiles, where a few guilty pleasure movies like Armageddon, which is one of John's favorite, but not one of mine, Con Air, which is a very silly movie, and even one of John's favorite guilty pleasures, Zorro the Gay Blade, <laughs> produced, believe it or not, one of the best conversations we've ever had on The Cinephiles. So maybe check out The Cinephiles for some guilty pleasures. And, and like like the conversation we had with Walter Koenig on our deep dive of the games of Triskelion, yeah, we got to look at the bad to really, really, really appreciate the good. And uh, and I enjoy 
I enjoy being critical of Star Trek just as much as I enjoy loving it because 98% of the time, I do love Star Trek. And we hope you do too. Well, we know you do if you're listening to Enterprise Incidents. And we hope that you are enjoying Enterprise Incidents. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance. And make sure you come back for the very next episode of Enterprise Incidents because we're going to play some Fizzbin with an episode that I've always loved, a true fan favorite and one that has Gene Coons uh, uh, sort of hands all over, even though he was long gone. This is a really, really fun episode. Can't wait to go to Sigma Eosia 2 for a piece of the action. That's next on Enterprise Incidents. Until then, keep going boldly.